We have begun to look at the fourth warning of Hebrews. You might remember it's, uh, it's sort of one long dissertation on the, the greatness of Christ, but that he pauses periodically to issue a warning. And we began the, the first part of the warning last week because the author has actually finished presenting his evidence for the superiority of Christ. Um, he, he, he won't present any more evidence. He's already done all that work. But now he pauses to ask for a response. You can have two possible responses to the gospel when you hear it. You can either accept it or you can reject it. And there's no, uh, no in-between. The accepting of the gospel obviously is the positive response, and that's the response that the author is hoping to, to hear. And those who respond positively begin by drawing near. And last week, we looked only at the positive response. We only had enough time to look at that. But you might look at verse 22, and that's where he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And that is really the first step. It starts with drawing near in faith. If you want to know Christ, this is where you begin. It begins with faith. And we talked last week about what that is. Firstly, it's recognizing your need. It says to draw near in a true heart, in full assurance of faith. You see, there must be a true heart that understands their deepest need, assured completely that that need would be met in Christ and in Christ alone. God is not simply something that you believe in uh, or something or someone that you may have experienced at some point in your life. You need God, and without Him, you're doomed. And I mentioned last week that we all uh, are born believing two lies, and the unconverted all believe these two lies as well. And number one is that they believe they're autonomous, that nobody rules them, they're independent, and they fight all their lives for that independence. That's why your kids fight you when they're born. (laughs) They are saying, you're not going to rule me. But you have to show them that ultimately they are ruled. We're all ruled. We have a creator. He created us in his image. And we have to recognize that ultimately, I can come and bow down before him willingly, submissively, because of what he's done for me, as a loving child does, or I can be forced to bow down to him as his enemy. But there will be bowing down because he rules. The second lie that they believe is that they're self-sufficient, that they have everything within themselves that that they need in order to do what they need to do, be what they're supposed to be. But that is not true. The Bible says there's no one that does any good. No one has any righteousness. We're desperately in need. And it is only Christ that can fill those needs. And so stepping out in faith, drawing near in faith is recognizing those needs, recognizing I need to be ruled. I've tried ruling myself. I make a lousy ruler. And so I need to be ruled. Would you rule me, Christ? I submit to you. And secondly, it says, I am a sinner. I have a, I have a big problem. I have a deep need that I can't fix. I can't be good, but you spilled your blood on that cross for me, and so I can come to you in faith. When you draw near to him and you do in full assurance uh, that Christ will forgive you through the blood of Christ, the second thing he calls you to do then is to hold fast to that. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. When you confess Christ as your rightful ruler, you find your sufficiency in him, and, and, and you're confessing that, that, listen, 
There's nothing else that's going to replace you. I've placed you as number one. All my hope is in you for everything. My hopes, my dreams, my goals, my aspirations, they've all been replaced. You have them, Lord. And I hold fast to that confession of hope because you have a new hope, but you have to hold on to it without wavering. And the third point we looked at last, last week was to encourage one another in love. Verses 24 and 25 spoke of that. Let us consider one another in, all, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We need to meet together. You need to have like-minded brothers and sisters around you because we need one another to help one another to hold on, to hold fast our confession of, of hope. And you have no hope of encouraging others to hold fast if you're not here encouraging one another to hold fast, right? You've got to be in the assembly And so to recap, he says, come to him in faith, hold on to him in hope, and encourage others to hold on as well and do that in love. And Paul encourages us to abide in those three things, faith, hope, and love, doesn't he? Faith, hope, and love. Those are the necessary foundational things for salvation. But that was the positive response. The other option is to reject the gospel, and obviously that is the negative response. And we did not get to that last week. So we have to look at the negative part today. And the negative part, those people that reject the gospel, uh, you should be sad. It's not good stuff. Yeah. I'd leave too. It's characterized by those who draw back. Those who accept the gospel, draw near, he says. Come near. But those who don't, draw back. It comes from verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. That means destruction. And so this is the negative response we have to look at today. But listen, if you get through this, it ends on a positive note. Okay, so stick with me. So this is the second part of our study, Don't Draw Back, part two. The author does not want people to take the negative approach. He wants them to accept the gospel. I'm going to look at the passage today. I'm going to read it. It's it's, uh, chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, My soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. And Lord, we uh, pray that you would be with us. We have to look at the hard truth here, the, the negative response that many, many people take when they hear the gospel. Because there's a warning here to not draw back because those who do can only expect judgment. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with us, that it would illuminate these truths, convict hearts where they need convicting, Lord, and that souls would be saved, that all this would be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I know we've talked about this before. This is not the first time the author has mentioned these kind of things, but what we have here in this whole section is a description of apostasy. And we've talked a lot about apostasy. Apostasy is an intentional withdrawing or falling away from the truth. And those who choose to respond negatively to the truth of the gospel are essentially apostates. And this is the severest warning in all of Hebrews, if not in all of Scripture. In fact, the author is seeking here purposely to strike some fear into the hearts of those who are considering turning away. And he twice uses this, this, this unique word to the book of Hebrews, this word about fear. It's um, faberas, faberas, sorry, that's, and it's inspiring fear. It's, it's terrible. It's formidable. He uses it in verse 27 and verse 31. He wants people to understand that if they reject the truth, there's only fear that follows that. A fearful expectation, a formidable dreading, something not good coming your way, in other words, is what he's saying. And so what we have here in this beginning section of this passage are characteristics of apostasy, if you're taking notes. Point one, characteristics of apostasy. Verse 26 says this, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, no no doubt this passage has been the cause of much misunderstanding regarding salvation. I've had many times, well, many of these sections from Hebrews, people come up pulling that one verse out and saying, oh, what about this? Because it looks like you can just sin, and if you sin willfully, well, you're done. But doesn't it make such a difference when we approach Scripture in the proper context? We've been studying. We've seen the flow of the argument up to this point. Here, the gospel has been presented over the course of chapters. Here is Christ. Look at what he is. He is all of these great things. And you're thinking about going back to these past things. But he says, but here is Christ. He's presented the gospel. And so the hearers, they've been given full and precise knowledge of the facts of the gospel. And now the gospel invitation has been extended to them. Now you know the truth. Won't you accept it? Draw near in faith. Hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. But see, many of them had accepted. Many of them had come to that point where they they had accepted it to that. I I, I understand it. I've got it. But remember, those are the, the, those that understand it on an intellectual level. They, they have accepted it, but they haven't quite received it. There's a, just a bit of a difference. Now, notice this phrase, the knowledge of the truth. If we sin willfully after the knowledge of the truth, there are many Greek words for knowledge. But this word is, is, is unique. It's epignosis, and it means full and precise knowledge. It means discernment and acknowledgment. And so the knowledge that they have is a full knowledge. This is not someone who just has a passing 
uh, knowledge of the gospel. I heard the gospel once, and now I've, I've, I've rejected it. Apostasy is someone who has understand fully well and acknowledge the truth of the gospel. They've heard it, and they understood it completely. And so the first characteristic of apostasy is this. Truth is known. Truth is known. They know the truth. Think about Israel's first king, King Saul. Now listen, he understood the truth. God had selected him through the prophet Samuel. He understood the laws of God. He understood it quite well. He knew that he um, had to submit to God as the ruler of Israel. And yet here's God's words about Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 11. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. Why? For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. See, that was a message given to Samuel. Uh, I, I, I regret that I made him king because he's, he's, he's turned back from me. See, that's apostasy. He knew the truth, but then he turned back from following him. You know, the Jews that this author is trying to reach, these people, you know, they know and understand the truth. They certainly understand the old covenant. They, they know completely that it was never able to uh, give them access to God but the new covenant does. It was never able to offer complete forgiveness of sins, temporary covering, because then they had to sacrifice an animal the next year. But this one does offer complete forgiveness of sins. He's proven it to them from their own Old Testament that all along God intended to replace the law because it made nothing perfect, according to chapter 7. And he's presented to them the better hope that comes from the better covenant which is built on better promises mediated by a better high priest who brought the better sacrifice, Jesus himself. So they, they have the knowledge of the truth. It's known and it's recognized. And this is the same thing that we looked at way back in chapter 6. So hopefully it'll help clear up that. Go back to chapter 6. Remember, he described them this way. In chapter 6, verse 4, he said, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put them to an open shame. They, they had all, all the blessings that they could possibly have. God had walked with them in the wilderness. He had given them the commandments. He had given them everything they need. And now they had come into the new covenant. They sat in a church, and they were part of all of the new blessings of the new covenant. Yet they were considering going back. And he says, listen, if you fall away, it's impossible to come back because there's nothing else to go to. You, you found something better. You fall away. How can you then be renewed for repentance? Which is the second characteristic. To fall away is to reject the truth. So truth is known, and then truth is rejected. Now watch what it says. It says this. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's the rejection of the truth. One who sins willfully. Now, what does this not refer to? How about I approach it that way? It doesn't refer to a believer who commits a sin willfully. Because first of all, if you're a believer, any sin you commit, you've done it willfully. <laughs> you know it. But it doesn't refer to someone who, who's just committed a sin willfully and that somehow God's blood, Christ's blood, sorry, has, has run out. There's just not enough to cover that. That's just too much. That's not what this is talking about. This is also not talking about sin that's committed in ignorance or inadvertently. 
Okay, this is speaking to someone who's willful and continual in response to the truth. They have rejected it. In other words, this sin can only be committed, I can say it this way, by church people. I'm not saying Christians, by church people, religious people, people who know the truth, like the Jews, like the Jews. Remember, they had hardened their hearts in the wilderness, and because they had hardened their hearts, it became evil in unbelief. And they were described in chapter 3 as departing from the living God. Did they know the living God? Yeah, they knew the living God. He led them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by the day. He fed them manna from heaven. He made water come from a rock. He did all these amazing miracles. They, they saw all that stuff. They rejected it. Does that make sense? They knew the truth. They rejected the truth. Listen to how John Calvin describes it. He says that these are sinners, but not those who fall into any kind of sin but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There's a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind, which makes you, uh, sorry, makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. Listen, do do Christians walk away for a time? We we, we use this term backsliding, don't we? Christians backslide, yes. Can we determine or distinguish between those who are just merely backsliding. Maybe it's been going on for months, maybe years, and we're praying. We're parents. We're praying for a a backslidden teen or whatever it might be. Can we distinguish between a a Christian who is backsliding and an apostate? You cannot. And you know what? We should not try. Remember the parable of the wheat and tares? You, you, You might tear up the wrong thing. We, that is for Christ to determine. We can't establish that. But listen, it's meant to be a warning to those who are backsliding, to them. Because do you know if you're apostate? Are, are you going to come back? Do you know it? Listen, there's a great verse that explains this very, very clearly. I'll put it up for you. It's 2 Timothy 2, 12 to 13. Very simple. It says this. If we endure, we shall reign with him. There, there it is. If you endure, if you continue in the faith, you're going to reign with him. But notice what it says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. You deny Christ, you turn from Christ, well, then then you're going to be denied by him. But look, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, look, look, look what happens here. If you endure to the end, you're going to reign with him. Because even when you're faithless, anyone been faithless? Anyone as a Christian just been faithless to God? Maybe you've sinned. Maybe you've just, just not had him in your mind. Maybe you've been faithless in your prayer. Every hand should be up. We're all faithless. Guess what? He's faithful. So it doesn't be- depend on that. I'm going to be faithless sometimes. But he can't deny himself. He remains faithful. Praise the Lord. He de- is. But listen, if you deny him, that's it. I have a brother who made a profession of Christ when he was young, right? Now that he's grown, he's told me and my my other brothers that he denies Christ. He doesn't believe any of it. It's all a bunch of rubbish. But because my father was there when he made that prayer, he maintains that, oh, no, he 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 is saved. I said, listen, the Bible is very clear, though, all right? If he were just backsliding and we didn't know and he was like, oh, he's not going to church, but he's not. He's saying that. He denies Christ. And if you deny Christ, you aren't saved. That is a scary thing. In fact, the Bible says right here that if you do that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no more forgiveness. So 
So what is, what is that? why? How can that be? Well, because they've rejected, if you've been studying with us the whole time, they've, they've rejected the only sacrifice for sins there is. There is no other sacrifice for sins. You reject the one sacrifice that has been given to you, you have nothing else to go to. There is no other sacrifice that can take away your sins. And so, in effect, you're, you're, re- you're rejecting salvation. Now, what can those who reject the truth expect? What, what are the consequences for such an act? This is point two, consequences of apostasy. And he goes into them here. Verse 27, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Firstly, he says this about about this. Okay, we've already talked about that word fearful. But he says there's a certain fearful expectation. You know, some people go, yeah, I don't know about all that nonsense about judgment and God and all that. Even Christians, have you heard that? Christians are like, oh, but God is love, so he's probably not going to judge. Did you see what it says here? It is a certain fearful judgment, which is the first kind of subpoint. What can you expect? What are the consequences of apostasy? Certain judgment. Not maybe, not possibly, it will come. Listen, it's all built on the last few chapters. Why will it come? Because your sins have not been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. God's wrath is being poured out upon all the sinners of the world, of which I am one, folks. But my sins have been covered because I've professed faith in Christ, and his sacrifice covers my sins and yours. Aren't you glad for that? But if you deny the only sacrifice, your sins aren't covered. They're bare. They're open. Open before the holy God who will judge. He will judge sin. So apostates, since they've rejected the truth and the only sacrifice that can offer forgiveness, they've actually been condemned. They're on death row. They're, they're, they're dead men walking. And, and this is illustrated in Jude, the book of Jude. He's dealing with apostates that are in the church. And in Jude chapter 1, verse 4, he describes it this way. He says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Now they're, they're, they're here and they've crept in. They were unnoticed. But notice what it says. But long ago, they were marked out for condemnation. There's, there's no salvation from apostasy. If you leave the faith, there is the only one faith, the faith in the blood of Christ. There is nothing else that protects you from the wrath of God. Nothing. And so he says they're marked out for condemnation. But notice also, what do they do? They deny the only Lord God. Do you see that? The characteristic of that, they deny Christ. And so there is a certain judgment. They were marked out for condemnation. But also, and this is scarier, a greater judgment. Second point of that, a greater judgment. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. What he's doing is he's taking us to the Old Testament to show us um, the Old Covenant. And this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Under the Old Covenant, a matter was established, okay, as absolutely true, if uh, two or three witnesses testified against you, and that included matters that required the death penalty, which is why, folks, the, the, the Pharisaical leaders were trying to get witnesses, two or three, to testify against Christ because they wanted to condemn him by the mouth of two or three witnesses. They just couldn't get any two that would agree. So two or three witnesses meant, yep, you could put that person to death. Rejection of any part, any part of the Mosaic law, two or three people confirm that, death. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says it. 
Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So two or three witnesses. And you might look at that and go, oh, that is a harsh law. It says you'll be put to death without mercy. You know, there's no, I like a second opinion. There's no other, we already got three witnesses. You're done. And boom, you were out there and you were stoned. Okay, and that's a harsh law. But what's his point? Look at how much greater a judgment comes in verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? In that old covenant, which is an inferior covenant, if that could require such a terrible punishment for its violation, how much more a severe punishment could you expect for rejecting the new covenant? Of which, first of all, means rejecting the Son of God. It says they've trampled the Son of God underfoot. That means to scorn him or treat him with insult. And remember, Jesus talked about casting your pearls before swine. He says, don't do that unless they trample them underfoot and then turn and tear you to shreds. They, they, they're seeking to destroy it. What this is is an attack on Christ's person. I don't need this Christ. I don't need this, this, this Jesus. I'm going to trample underfoot. What are they missing? They're missing who his father is. He's the son of God, the creator of everything that you see, of everything that exists. They trample the son of God. Jesus tells a parable about this, doesn't he? The wicked vine dressers, that, that the, the, the vine dressers were put in charge of this, this, this you know, vineyard. And the, the owner puts them in charge of that. And when it's time to come and collect the fruit, he says, oh, I'll send some servants to go get the fruit from it. And when the servants come, they beat one up, they stone another, they kill the other. And so he, he sends them more servants and they do the exact same thing to them. And so finally the owner says, well, I guess I'll send my son because they'll, they'll respect my son. You see, there's a relationship there. He put these people in charge because he knew them. And he says, oh, they'll respect my son because he's my son. They respect me. Certainly they'll respect him. I'll send my son. And what do they do? They kill the son because they said, oh, if we kill him, maybe we can take the inheritance for ourselves. And Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees. And then he asks them this question. I'll put you the question up there. This is what he says. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their seasons. They could see the, oh yeah, I, hopefully they'd, just, they'd, they'd kill, he'd kill those vine dressers. Of course, that should be their response. They killed his son. And then it says at the end of the parable that they perceived that he was talking about them. They went, yeah, this is what he should do. Oh wait, he's talking about us. Because he was talking about the religious leaders of the day who were leading their own people astray. And when, when the prophets were sent, the servants of God, they rejected them. They killed them over and over again. He finally said, you know what? I'll send my son. And they killed the son, didn't they? It's the same thing. He's saying, this is what you do. You do the same thing. You take the son of God. You trample him underfoot. You reject him. It's an attack on his person. What can you expect then? God's judgment. You just killed his son. It also says something about the blood of the covenant. It says they counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. That means a profane thing. That means, what do I care about the blood of Jesus? It's like the blood of any other man. Oh, it's like the blood of a bull or a goat. I could care less about the blood of of Jesus. It's the only someone who understands that the blood of Christ is holy and is the only sacrifice that can sanctify a person should respond properly to that blood. 
These people should know that and understand that they come from the church. They've heard it all. They're religious. They know all these things intellectually, but eventually they, they turn from these things. They say, yeah, I don't need it though. His blood is his blood, whatever. That's an attack on Christ's work. You attack the person of Christ. You also attack the work of Christ. Christ, he's already talked about what that blood accomplished for you and for me. It secured your eternal redemption. All you have to do is take it. It gave you a clean conscience. Anyone here have absolutely clean conscience? You should if you're a believer. But if you're not, you don't because your sin hasn't been completely removed. It's only completely removed in Christ. It gives us access to God and then it sanctifies us positionally and practically. We looked at all those things. And so to treat his precious blood and sacrifices as no different than the blood of anybody else or anything else as a common thing or profane thing, that's a rejection of his work. And when you reject the person and work of Christ, you also reject the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And he mentions that as well. He says, and you've insulted the spirit of grace. You know, this is the only place in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of grace. That's exactly what it is. Grace has come to you and I through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is called um, the spirit of grace actually is referred to in the Old Testament. It's not the New Testament. It's the only place here. But in the Old Testament, in Zechariah 12, 10, look how it's used. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Who was the one that they pierced? Christ himself. He said that spirit of grace will be poured upon the Jews so that one day they'll see for the first time and they'll see, oh, we pierced him. We took the son of God. We trampled him underfoot. We mocked the work of Christ in his blood. When you do those things, you also insult the spirit of grace. We all stand condemned by God as guilty sinners who are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's how we're described in the Bible. And yet he sends his spirit of grace to testify to our souls about the reality of our condition so that we can be awakened to that and then be awakened to our deep needs so that we can draw near in faith. It's the spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the one who arrogantly turns away from the truth revealed by the spirit of grace has essentially done the same thing the Pharisees were guilty of doing when Christ was on earth and he was doing those amazing miracles. He was healing the blind, making dead rise, making lame people walk. And they said he probably does that by the power of Satan. Just just flippantly, that's, that's that's not the power of God. That's called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says this about it in Matthew 12. 31 to 32, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. You can, be, you can be forgiven for every sin. And even those who take the name of God in vain, every blasphemy, you, you have forgiveness. But there's something you don't have forgiveness from. He says, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. There's no forgiveness from that. It's the same thing as what he said here. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The Spirit is the one who has testified to the truth, revealed the truth, and when you reject the truth, where else are you going to go? What more can God reveal to you? There's nothing. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, and there is no forgiveness because he's revealed all the truth there is to know, and yet it's been rejected. And so that relatively light sentence in the Old Testament, two or three witnesses and then you're dead, right? When you, when, you, when you contrast that, that's just physical death. 
But the greater judgment that comes here is spiritual death, eternally in the lake of fire. So there's a certain judgment, and there's a greater judgment, and it's certain, and it's greater. And this is the last point here because it's God's judgment. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This is a loose reference to Deuteronomy 32, 35 to 36. He's just referencing where these concepts have originated. And uh, to show you it, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 35, he says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. Vengeance is mine. God will take vengeance. He will deal out wrath. Now, listen, let me just temper that with this. God is not slack concerning his promises, as some consider slackness. He's long-suffering toward us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But as I mentioned last week, as, the, as was exemplified in Noah's flood, that one point, that door to that ark closed, and there was no more hope for those people that were drowning in the water. Listen, at one point, the, the, the door is going to close for you as well. And there will be no more opportunity. You'll now be in the hands of God. And what's he say about that in verse 31? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, folks, it is you and almighty God and nothing else. That is a scary thought, especially to know that he's your enemy. And he's rightfully going to mete out judgment upon you. I can look at meeting God with joy because he's my father. You see, I've submitted to him as a father. He, is, he has ruled me well. I have tried to rule myself, and I've tried to use some of those things that we sometimes turn to to rule us, those, those masters that we set over the, us, whatever they are, uh, drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever those things are. We, they're, they're temporary masters. Can I, do they ever treat you well? It does not ever turn out well. My father is a great master. I willingly submit to him. I bow the knee to him because he loves me and he gave his son for me. Now, you might be listening to all this going, well, I mean, what could possibly lead people to abandon their faith? When they hear all these things, certainly they should all be jumping about their seats and say, that's me. Listen, the Bible gives us many, many, many reasons for why people abandon it. I'll just give you a few here, okay? False teachers is one of them. Jesus says that many false prophets will rise up and it says, deceive many. That's in Matthew 24, 11. And when he continues to go on through Matthew 24, he actually goes on to say that false Christs and false prophets will show great signs and uh, wonders to deceive, if possible, he says, even the elect. The, the, the miracles and wonders will be so miraculous and so convincing that if it were possible, it would even, it would even deceive those that God has chosen. They're going to be convincing. And so people listen to them. They're deceived. They're deceived by false teaching. And Paul says this about that in 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ear away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. See, false teachers can lead people to become apostates. Temptation is another one. Remember the rocky soil hearers who receive the word in the parable of the sower? They're in the rocky soil. They receive it with joy, but remember, it's, it's rocky soil. There's no root. 
And so when temptation comes, it says they fall away in time of temptation. You know, Paul had such an associate. His name was Demas. And, you know, Paul loved to travel with companions, didn't he? And he was really hurt by this to the point where he had to ask Timothy to come and join him instead. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 10. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. There was an apostate. Man, I had a guy by my side, and the next thing I knew, he, he was just gone. He, he just forsaken me completely. Tempted by the world. Neglect is another one. We address this in chapter two of this letter. A person can put off deciding and keep putting off and keep putting off. They have opportunity after opportunity to hear the truth, to respond to the truth. They just keep putting off. He says as if they're just sailing right by the harbor of salvation. They just neglect salvation. They neglect the opportunity. In Hebrews 2, 3, it said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's no escape from that. You have the opportunity. One day the door is going to close. You know, to make no decision for Christ is actually to decide against him. Another one, we touched on this last week, is forsaking Christian fellowship. You know, you, you, you pull away from, and withdraw from the church long enough, ultimately, I've, I've seen they, they, they don't come back. They don't come back to the church and they don't come back to Christ. And that's why he said in chapter 24 and 25, verses 24 and 25, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see that day approaching. We need encouraging. A couple quick ones, clinging to old religion. That's what the Jews here were doing. They were holding on to that Old Testament, wanting to go back. And he was saying, listen, don't do that. But let me remind you why they were wanting to go back, which is another reason for apostasy, it was persecution. They had, they had paid the price, boy. They had endured hostility. They had been ostracized from the Jewish community for choosing to follow Jesus, and it was just getting hard to stay the course. Persecution is a, is a means of apostasy, and they, they were in danger of going back. And this is why he was writing this, saying, don't go back. Don't draw back. Draw near. Now, you might have heard all of this and going, man, this is just awful. Where's the good news? Listen, he wants you to understand there isn't good news if you reject Christ. He wants you to understand that. But there is confidence that you can have against apostasy. Because you might be a Christian sitting here today going, well, could I be an apostate? I mean, maybe I don't really know the Lord. Maybe I don't really have a faith. Here's the confidence that he gives. It's one of the most effective ways to build confidence against the danger of apostasy is to remind, first of all, people of their past victories, what Christ has already done remembering the past. And this is what he transitions into to give some encouragement to his hearers. Look at verse 32, well, 32 to 34. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You see, they had initially come into faith, joined the church, were sitting in their number. This is their time of enlightenment. And they paid the price. They were rejected from the Jewish community. They had suffered much. Notice what he says. They were made a spectacle of. They were publicly exposed to reproaches, to insults, ridicule, They had endured tribulations, afflictions. No doubt some of them were flogged and beaten. They were publicly abused and insulted and disgraced for their faith. 
or they were companions to others who were. So he says, think back to the suffering you already endured for Christ, and Christ brought you through that. He says, think back to the way you served even during that time. They had compassion, he says, on me in my, my chains. Or the, the oldest manuscripts says, in prisoners in chains. So perhaps they were ministering to those who had been arrested for their faith and imprisoned. And, 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 and they were suffering and they were serving those who were suffering. He says, think back to the time of suffering and how you persevered and you even served those who were suffering. He says, think back and to how you sacrificed Notice what it said, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. Could you imagine that? When you come to the point of of persecution like that, where, where people arrive on your doorstep, haul you off to jail, and they march into your house and start plundering your goods, would you do it joyfully? He says, you did it joyfully, because because why? What do you say? Knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You see, you had that eternal perspective there. Treasures laid up in heaven. Remembering that your citizenship is in heaven. And here's our theme word again, isn't it? A better, a better possession in heaven. You see, there were past spiritual victories, and he's trying to get them to remember those things. But their current time of suffering, the suffering they're going right now, through right now, has caused them to forget um, and how to respond to those difficulties that God had brought them through. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about our church and the difficulties some people have gone through. And I my mind went back to quite a number of years back now, uh, a few women were in a horrific car accident. It's horrible. <laughs> and beat up, right? Mentally, physically, spiritually, brutal. And I just thought, what a time they had to go through. All the questions I imagined, why God? Why? Why would you do that? I'm your child. Why would you do this? Suffering physically, trying to heal from those wounds. One of them, He's getting married next week. And I thought, wow, you could look back at those ladies and say, they really could have just tossed it off then, right? Okay, what kind of God is this? He doesn't love me. And I would say to them, think back to what God did. He brought you through it. Amazing. Is there any suffering you're going through now that is greater than that? Could you not look back and go, wow, God, you brought me through that? I thought about all the questions I had, the emotional insecurity, the mental trauma, the physical trauma Naomi primarily had, right? Horrific. You think back to that. Remembering our past victories, that is an incentive, an incentive to properly respond in the now. Okay, God brought me through before. I can keep going. So how do we respond in the present? Responding in the present, verse 35, he says this, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that, you, uh, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He says, confidence. You have confidence because he says, don't cast it away. Don't cast it off. Some, confidence is something we have. That's the boldness to enter the throne of God. That's our memory verse this week, Hebrews 4, isn't it? Boldly enter the throne room of grace confidently. We have confident access to God. He says, therefore, don't cast that away. Don't toss that away. What else are you going to go to? Look back. Look back at what Christ did for you. you it has great re- reward. You'll endure uh, to the end. You see, they knew the promises. They rejoiced in those promises in the past. They had suffered in those promises, but they haven't quite received the promises, have they? 
We, we haven't either. That, that final reward won't be obtained by any of us um, until the end. We'll have to endure to the end to obtain it, won't we? And reminds me of chapter 6, verse 12. It says this, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who, brought, who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate those who through faith and patient, patience inherit the promises. What helps us persevere? How do we endure, especially in the midst of trials and persecutions? In a word, it's faith. In a word, it's faith. Look at verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is a reference to Habakkuk 2, uh, verses 3 to 4. It's not an exact quote, but here's what that passage says. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Do you see his point here? He says, Jesus is coming soon. He, he won't tarry. And the just, th- those that are truly uh, saved, they will live by faith. But the lost will draw back because they do not exhibit faith. And those without faith, well, God has no pleasure in them is what he says. And what this sets up for us is the greatest exposition on faith in all of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, faith is so necessary, just to give you a sneak peek, verse 6 of chapter 11 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. It begins with faith. So the author here issues this wonderful encouragement. Listen, I know you're struggling and you're thinking about going back, but you've heard all the truth and you know the truth. Now, look back. You already endured much for him, and he brought you through it. Is he going to remain faithful? Even when we're faithless, he will. But we can't deny him. And he has such confidence in his hearers. Look what he ends with in verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. He's like, that's not us. That's not anyone in this room. And I want to say the same thing. I hope that's not anyone in this room. We're not of those who will draw back, who would reject the truth. And that leads to perdition, destruction but of those who believed the saving of the soul. May that be true of everyone here today. Have saving faith to the saving of your soul. Faith is everything. We persevere in faith. We look back in faith. We look up in faith, and we look forward in faith. And it begins there. Don't draw back. Draw near. He's shown you the truth. It's been revealed to you. You've all heard it today as well now, and you can make that choice some of you may maybe never made that choice, and I pray that you would, you would make it today. All it takes is saying, I understand my need. I understand it can only be met by Christ and what he's done for me. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel invitation that has been here the last few weeks. For the reminder that we can either accept that truth or reject it. I know it's easier to to hear about the positive side of things, those who uh, accept it and how to do that, Lord. And it's, it's hard. It is hard and difficult to look at this side of things, but this is the truth of Scripture. There is a place created for the devil and his angels, we're told. It's a place called hell. And God never intended that to be made for humans. But men will choose to go there because they will reject the truth. Christ has made the only way to God accessible. 
through him and through his work. And I pray people would receive that, understand their deepest need can only be met in Christ and enter into the joyful presence of God Almighty. We pray in these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing a closing song.